Good morning. How you doing this morning? <laughs> what was that? Better than usual? Better than we deserve? We're good, right? Well, hey, I'm uh, just thrilled to be here this morning and uh, thrilled to be a part of Mount Calvary these last couple months. Again, I want to, in December, we want to finish up interviews, so if you haven't made an appointment yet, please do. And I'm asking you to do it so we can do it at your convenience, and I'll come out to your place or you can come here, but we'll sit and we'll meet. And uh, we'll kind of give you, maybe on the New Year's service, a, a report on what we've uh, put together, kind of an evaluation assessment of where we've been and what we've learned about your church over the last couple of uh, months. And then beginning in January, we'll begin uh, to put together a transition team. And in that transition team, about maybe 15 to 20 people, uh, we'll begin to carve out uh, some of uh, the future for you, some vision. And I just want to say a couple things to you this morning about that. One of the things that we've been trying to get you to do is to dream. Because the thing that builds churches is not organization, it's not programs, it's not management, it's not any of that. It's vision and relationships that build churches. And what happens over time is churches do this. Churches, when they start out, they walk by faith, not by sight. As they get older, they begin to walk by sight, not by faith. And you begin to say, well, if we need this staff person, how are we going to pay for it? When you were young, you didn't worry about that. It's kind of like uh, every person has a life cycle. Your life cycle as an individual obviously is your birth and there's early uh, youth and then you move into the your teen years and in those years you begin to dream about what you could do with your life you really don't know what you're going to do and you don't know what the path is and you don't know how you're going to make money or you don't know where you're going to live or you really don't know anything but you have a lot of dreams and it's really the greatest time of your life because you have the future in front of you, and there's all this potential in the world. From there, you move into midlife, and you kind of work your way up the ladder, and you kind of put money away, and you kind of have a house, and you kind of have all the stuff you wanted to get, except for guys, they keep getting more toys. And uh, you, you, you kind of hit that midlife where it, it, it's not what you thought it would be, but it's really pretty good. And then you start to hit the older years where you begin to worry about, well, retirement's facing, I'm, the nest is empty, we're home alone, and, uh, and, and we're facing real quick the years when we're going to be retired, and what are we going to do with retirement, where are we going to live, and all that stuff, and are we going to have enough money? And you're beginning to really walk by sight because you're looking at what you have. And the next thing is you die. And where churches need to be and where churches and where you need to go as a church and church revitalization about this, about dreaming big and walking by faith and, and seeing what's the potential, what's the future for Mount Calvary? What could God do here? And what you need to understand is this, and I say this understanding where I am in my life, but the vision for the future lies in the heart of your, the, the young generation that's here because they're the ones that's, that are dreaming and what we'll do with the transition team is we'll begin to put together a vision from the future that because the vision lies in the hearts of the people that are already here. 
And so we want to try and see as we put that together and as we spend a couple months working through that process of what could be accomplished and we're what are the dreams? And it's been neat to see the dreams come back. It's been interesting to see them come back because the, the big dreams are in the young generation. <laughs> They're here. And so that's kind of where we're at, and that's kind of where we're going. And I would say this to you, one, just in some of my observations, there's a lot of churches in this area. Have you all noticed that? One of the things that's hit me coming out to this area is there's a lot of churches in this area. I think on my drive here, I don't know how many churches I pass, but it's several churches. Why should anybody come to Mount Calvary? Because there's big churches that offer the relational environments. There's small churches that offer the relationships. There's, there's a little bit of everything in this community, and there's all kind of denominations there's different flavors of evangelicalism there's just a little bit of everything in this area why would anybody come here why would you come here and the answer to me as i look at you and see what you're doing is simply the answer is this because we'll teach you how to make disciples and we'll teach you how to do mission and you need to understand this, that making disciples and doing mission, are, it's really the same thing. Missional living is disciple making. But you have to understand that as a parent, you're not just raising children. You're making disciples. You see, mission begins in your home. Because that's what you do in your home. You're making disciples, and you need to understand, how do we make disciples of children? That's the most important place you'll ever make disciples. And so come here. We'll teach you how to make disciples at work. Because you have to be really careful at work. Because you're there, you're being paid by your employer, and you need to do an honest day's work for an honest day's wage. Right? Right? and you're on their time. So you have to be careful how you do that. And then we need to understand how to make disciples in the community. And that's where the dreams are coming back. How, it's not how can we get people to church, but we think in these terms, how can we get the church to people? Because over time what happens is you begin to build buildings and you begin to accumulate people and you begin to assess and you begin to think in terms of how can we get people to come to Mount Calvary? That's the wrong way of looking at it. The, the, the question is really this, how do we get Mount Calvary to the community? That, because that's how it began as you started. It's how can we get in the community and begin to reach people? And so it's just trying to help you to gain an understanding and, and just recasting vision. And, and there's some exciting days before you. I th honestly, looking at what you have and where you're at and where you can go, it's, it's exciting the potential to be, and it's neat to be a part of this process uh, with you and to work through this. But it's neat to watch a dream. And I hope that you'll, you'll keep dreaming, and I hope that as you go forward, you'll, you'll say, we walk by faith, not by sight. And, and when the dream is so big, you say, how in the world are we going to pay for that? That's the right dream right there. Because anything short of that, you can do, 
then you haven't dreamed big enough because you need to big you need to dream big enough that only God can do this through you. Forgive me for sharing a personal story. But yesterday I did my third funeral in the last 6 months of a 30-year-old who overdosed on drugs. 3. That's me, just me. As I go to these funeral homes, they're saying to me this, we're seeing this all the time. And I'm thinking as an individual, we can't just sit here in church. We can't be a church that sits here. There's a community out there that is suffering, hurting, and they're, 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 they're literally taking their lives read an article this morning. Do you know that suicide among pastors is going this direction? It's, it's spiking. It's spiking in our community. And, 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 and if you know this, if you're a first responder, odds are four times greater that you'll take your life for first responders, for police, for firemen, and for anybody that's a first responder, odds are four times greater you're going to commit suicide. We're seeing it among our veterans, or the kids coming back from the, from the desert, from the wars. They're taking their lives. We can't sit here and not do anything. And I hope we can just instill in you a, a, just to dream big that we can and you as a church can make a difference in Elizabethtown. And you have to make a difference in Elizabethtown or you don't deserve to exist. Because God didn't call us and God didn't save us and God didn't put us in this place just to sit here and learn more stuff. He saved us to go out and to make a difference in the community in which we live. And, and boy, God knows it just is a time that is greatly needed for God's people to be penetrating the various places of this community and making a difference. So, Lord willing, after the new year, we'll begin to do the transition team and we'll begin to lay out some specific things, vision for the church and your future. And uh, so just kind of a heads up to you that that team is going to be made up primarily, not exclusively, of the younger generation of this church. Okay? You all understand that? Okay, I'll do it this way. Get it? Good. Just want you to know ahead of time that uh, we were listening to Andy Stanley the other day. We were at the Catalyst Conference over at LCBC. And most of you know Andy Stanley. name. He said this, and it really hit me. He said, I'm 60. He said, the dreams for the future don't lie in my heart anymore. They lie in the younger generation's heart. And it was kind of a reminder to me that I am 60 as well, and, and, and so the dreams for the future don't lie in my heart. They lie in the hearts of these kids sitting right down here in the front. They lie in the hearts of the younger generation of this church. So I'm going to ask this as we do this. All of you that are over 50, listen to me carefully. You want your kids to dream big, and we're going to need you to help support their dreams. And all of you that are over 50, get it? That was half-hearted at best. But I'll just say, good.
Because if you're over 60, you're probably saying this. We don't like church today. We want it to go back to what it used to be. Anybody that's in here that's under 30 doesn't want to go back to what it used to be. They want to go forward to what it can be. Okay? And all of you that are under 30, you want it to go forward, not backwards. Right? All of you that are over 50 are struggling with changes in the church. I get that. I'm over 50. But don't let your wanting to go backwards stifle the future generation from going forward. Because there was a time when you were in your 20s and you were in your 30s and you wanted to go forward, not backwards. And that's what we call the shift from walking by faith to walking by sight. And for Mount Calvary to go through the process of church revitalization, what you need is you need to see the future, not the past. Don't forget the past because you got here because of your past. Okay? So you need to appreciate the past and you need to build off the past. I always think of it this way. Climb on the shoulders of the previous generation and reach further. And that's where we're at. With I, in, in, as an IPM consultant with you and working with your church, that's where we're at. That's a little bit of what I've seen and experienced here. And so we're very excited about what's going to take place in 2017 and the things that we'll begin to carve out for the future. Okay? All that said, took a bunch of my time. And uh, let's dive into a text and move really quickly through a text. Let's go to Luke chapter 13 and continue our fly over the book of Luke, okay? As we uh, fly over, we don't have time to look at all the details. We won't again this morning have time to look at the details. But what I want you to see is the ministry of Jesus, because he's incredible. And uh, he's, he's quickly approaching the cross. But one of the characteristics that you'll notice in the life of Christ that's really striking is patience, patience. And, and as he continually deals with these Pharisees who are constantly challenging him and constantly, you know, bucking up against what he's teaching and what he's doing, he just exhibits patience. But then you realize that patience is one of the fruits of the Spirit, long-suffering. It's a social virtue that Jesus puts on display in his living. One of the things that needs to take place as you begin to do mission is patience. Patience in doing mission because nothing happens on our timetable, but everything happens on God's timetable. So we have to learn as people not to live on our timetable. We have to learn to live on his timetable and exhibit patience with people that are struggling with issues, they're wrestling with Christianity, they're, they're going through processes that all of them need to go through, they're wrestling with questions that need to be wrestled with, and the Holy Spirit, in the meantime, is working with them. So Jesus, again, patiently stays on mission, and he does so with the Pharisees, even though they continually reject him. So as you look at this, you say, what can we learn from Jesus as you could look at this group of people who just constantly reject him, at the same time, there's a group of people that are constantly believing in him. So there's both. 
As we go through this, we've been doing bold, and let me just say this to you as we go through bold. B is brave. There has to be bravery on our part, the willingness to overcome obstacles or fears. There needs to be opportunities, not be obnoxious. We can't be that. Uh, So we're going to look for opportunities. We're going to love people as God gives us and puts people on our path. We're committed to loving them. That means this, I am concerned about their welfare more than I am concerned about my welfare. That's what love is. It's sacrificial in nature. And then we're going to declare the truth. And we've said this all along. We're going to declare the truth a slice at a time. My daughter made me a, a pecan, pecan pie. I say, I say pecan. How do you say it out here? Pecan? That's the wrong way. <laughs> Just so you know. It's pecan, pecan pie. My daughter made me a pecan pie. Okay, pecan pie. Sorry. My daughter made me a pecan pie. Well, I struggle with blood sugars. So if I ate the whole pie at one time, it would not be a good thing, okay? So you know how I'm eating that pie? That much at a time. Now, that thing's going to mold before I get through it at this current rate. But it, it, it's, it's like I am going to tackle that whole pie. I'm going to take probably two months to do it, but I just can't sit down and eat the whole thing because if I sat down and ate the whole pie at one time, what would happen? I'm probably going to be up to the hospital getting my blood sugars regulated. What happens when you try and jam the gospel down somebody's throat? It's like eating a whole pie at one time. It doesn't work. So we eat it how? A slice at a time. And as we declare truth, we declare truth a slice at a time so that people can digest truth. And then I digest another slice of truth. And before you know it, they eat the whole pie. And so we're bold. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and uh, John were taken in before the Pharisees, and they they were judged because they were boldly declaring the truth. And of course, they're brought in, and the the group didn't understand how they could be this outright and out front with this Jesus guy. And so they questioned them pretty severely, and then they said, look, you can go, I will not kill you, but when you get out there, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And you know the answer they said to him. They said, look, we can't not talk about him. So whether you kill us or not, that's, you make that decision. But as long as we're out there, we're talking about Jesus. They go back to their group of disciples and they, after they were released, and when they get together with a group of disciples, they spend time in prayer, and their prayer was beginning, praise God for the opportunity to die for him, because our dreams are big, and if we die fulfilling our dreams, that's okay. But they, as they get together and they pray, in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 29, this is the prayer they made. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to us, your servants, to continue to speak the word of the Lord with boldness. So our bold concept just pours right out of Scripture, and we want to challenge you to be bold. Now, what do we learn from Jesus as we look at this? We learn he's pretty bold because they're going to kill him, and he doesn't care. In this passage of Scripture, or the next chapter, I forget which it is, he, they talk about, you know, you got to quit because Herod's going to kill you. And Jesus said, you go tell that fox that I'm a minister today, tomorrow, and then the third day he can get me. So he's not afraid to die. And that's where the disciples learned this whole thing. 
So as we enter into this chapter, this chapter really builds around three concepts. And going through it very quickly, I want you to see, first of all, and I want you to watch Jesus challenge and question unbelief. In the first nine verses of chapter 13, you get this. He just, he, he, he asks the questions again, and I want you to see this. Look at verse number one. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. During this gathering in Jerusalem, Pilate just took the lives of a bunch of people and killed them. Galileans, Jews, killed them. Just for, I don't know, for no reason whatsoever. Just decided, I'm going to take their lives, kill these people. So Jesus said, as, as this took place, and they come and they inform him of this, this is what Jesus said. In verse 2, he answered them, he said, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Jesus asked that question to the Pharisees. Do you think they died because they were worse sinners? Now, knowing what you know about the Pharisees, how would the Pharisees answer that? The answer would have been what? Yes, they were worse sinners. That's why they died. And Jesus then boldly says, no. And I want to tell you something. Unless you repent, you perish. That's pretty bold. Pretty bold. And then he goes on, and, and, he, and Jesus gives another illustration. In, in verse number 4, he says, Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell... And killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who live in Jerusalem? He knows their answer. It's a rhetorical question. And the answer, the answer that is not recorded, but the answer that Jesus knows is in their hearts. And, he, and then he looks at him again, and he repeats something. And whenever something is in a text twice, it's pretty big. And he says, no. And he looks at this group of Pharisees and says, unless you repent, you die you perish. Jesus questioning. Two powerful questions. And being self-righteous people, you know what they answered. And so he challenges them and he says, unless you repent. And he questions. And what we learn is just questions, questions, questions. Jesus was the master of questions. I think this, try to do this. Whenever somebody asks you a question, ask a question back. Don't ever answer a question. Or I say it this way. Don't ever answer a question with a statement. Always answer a question with a question. In fact, when your kids come to you and say, hey, I want you to take out the trash. Why? Don't say, because I said so. Because you know what happens in the heart of a kid when you say, because I told you to do that? Guess what goes on in their heart? Rebellion. It begins to instill rebellion into their heart when you tell them what they have to do. Instead, maybe say to that kid, well, why do you think I asked you? And then he has to stand there and think, that's a good question. I didn't think about that. And that's what you want. Because you want people to process. Any of you guys, you're married, your wife tells you how to do something, what's your reaction? Come on, guys. You love it, right? All of you men who love to be instructed by your wife on everything, go ahead, raise your hand. I got one. One. 
That's right. So the best way to instruct your husband and wife, don't tell him what to do. Ask him why he did what he did. Because that's an interesting answer when that does come out. And when he answers the question, ask, ask questions. Jesus was a master. And the way to get people to process information and the way to get people to think is not tell them what to do or tell them what to believe, but the answer is question what they think and question what they believe. Now, Jesus does make the statement here. He said, no, you're going to die. And they're going to kill him. Here's why they're going to kill him. He knows it. He's on his way to the cross, and he's getting there. And he knows that by challenging their authority, by attacking them in this situation in a right way, he knows the outcome. But what you get here is you understand that Jesus patiently asked questions and asked questions. So the challenge from Jesus is being bold by asking questions of people who are unbelievers, struggling. But then he says something to the Pharisees, and again, we don't have time to deal with it. The parable of the fig tree, he begins to tell them a fig, about a fig tree that withered up and died, and it's going to be cut down. And he's painting a picture here of what their future looks like, and it's not a good future. And therein lies the challenge to repent. Because if you don't repent, you're going to be like the fig tree. When it withers up, it's going to be cut down and it's going to be burned up. That's a powerful story. But as you move in this chapter further, you come to verses 10 and 21, and what you learn from Jesus here is you're going to see Jesus ministering and challenging. So he questions and challenges. He ministers and challenges. He always challenges. He never leaves something open-ended. He always leaves a challenge. And as you get into this, this chapter, watch him minister. Look what happens. In, in uh, verse number 10, it says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had a disabling or an evil spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. Now, I don't have time to show you this morning, but that is a picture of one's life outside of Christ. They are bent over, and they are disabled by evil, and, and in all likelihood, evil spirit. There are people that are coming in here. There are people that are coming, that have come in the last several weeks, and they are bent over by sin, and they can't escape it. They're wrestling because they hear the message of freedom. They hear the message of relief. But they, they go to this. But I like what my lifestyle is. I like this particular sin. And, and the truth is, I've been involved in this particular sin that if I make this decision, it's going to change my life radically. And I can't envision how that looks. I can't see that. So they're bent over. They're unable they're totally crippled by this thing. There's no way for them to get out of it. They're, they're struggling with that evil spirit. They're struggling with that sin that has captured them, that has bent them over. They like it. They're caught in it. They can't see their way out of it. That is a picture of us outside of Christ. That's us. That's us without Christ. That's why salvation isn't Jesus coming to you the day you came and received him as your personal savior. That's why you need that savior every day because that sin that you still struggle with still 
it still cripples you. And you need that Savior every day. You need him in every way to just touch your life and to continually free you from sin. That does so easily, as Hebrews said, beset us, ensnare us. It's a great picture. But the picture goes deeper because Jesus calls her over, and when she comes, Jesus simply touches her and says, woman, you are free. And immediately, the picture of this passage is she stands up straight. Look at it. And he laid his hand, verse 13, and he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. And then it goes on, but the ruler of the synagogue was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Are you kidding me? Here is a woman that is ensnared by sin, that is crippled by sin. Jesus heals on the Sabbath, and this guy is upset. But I want to tell you that you probably all experienced the very same thing. Because you went through that, you came to Christ, you experienced salvation, and you went home and told your family that I got saved. And guess what your family said? You did what? If you were Muslim and you went home and you told your family that, they'd be a little angry with you. See? In fact, they might kill you. So we've experienced that. All of you, when you came to Christ, had people that questioned why you did that. What, what, what in the world were you thinking? But I'm free. Yeah, you're the one experiencing the freedom, but everyone else is saying, why did you do that? It's exactly how it is. It's exactly how it is. And as Jesus begins to minister, the Pharisees become angry. And what happens is... The fruit of the Spirit is seen in Jesus in that he's patient, but the works of the flesh or the fruit of the flesh are seen in, the, in these Pharisees because what comes out is anger, and anger is a fruit of the flesh. You can read them both in Galatians chapter 5, but the works of the Spirit are this, the works of the flesh are this, and immediately what comes out is anger. And I love what Thomas Watson said, the old writer that said this, this is so picturesque. He said, when anger and lust burn in the soul, Satan warms himself at the fire. Is that a powerful statement or what? When anger or when lust burn in the soul, Satan warms himself at that fire. Powerful statement. That's exactly what's going on. So Jesus challenges these Pharisees in verses 15 to 17. Look what he says to them in verse 15. Then the Lord answered and said, you hypocrites. You remember back a chapter when he said to the disciples, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now Jesus boldly calls them out on their hypocrisy. And here... Why does he do this? Because he's trying to bring them. He's being so patient, saying, come. And then again, Jesus tells a story. He tells a story that uh, shows what's going to happen to his kingdom. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of seeds, but grows to a big tree. He said, that's what's going to happen, guys. 
Then he tells about leaven, and he said, leaven, it, it, when it gets into the flour, it'll eventually perma permeate all of the leaven. And he said, that's what my kingdom is going to be like. And what he says is this, and what he's saying to them in those two stories is this, you can crucify me, but you're not going to stop the mission. You can crucify me, but the mission will accomplish what God intended it to accomplish. So you learn something here that's so important for us. What is significant in this whole thing is not us. If we make us the significant aspect of this thing, we're in trouble. God's going to take it down. God's not going to bless it. The significant aspect was the mission. It was the mission. This thing has to be accomplished. And what Jesus is showing here is the mission is the most important thing. What if, and some of you have been, what if today we were all in the military? What if today we were all in Iraq? And what if today we were all engaged in conflict with ISIS? What would be the most important thing? The mission. The mission. Would we be willing to sacrifice some of the people so that the mission could be accomplished? It's what warfare is all about. It's a picture. What the church is about is this. It's about the mission. Nothing stops us from the mission. And that's what Jesus is teaching here, and he's challenging them. And then he comes to one final section in this chapter, and let's wind us down real quick. Jesus explains. So in this passage of Scripture... He, he does a couple things. He questions and he challenges. And then he ministers by using his capabilities and his capacities to heal this lady and free this lady. He ministers, but then he challenges. And then he gives explanation and he challenges. Now, just process Jesus. I mean, he's incredible. He is incredible. And what I want you to see in this, watch him as he explains, because someone comes and asks him a question, beginning in verse 22. Watch this. Someone comes and said, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Are a lot of people going to get saved? This is one of the most fascinating sections of all the Bible. It really is. Because the question is simply, are there going to be a lot of people get saved? And Jesus says, no. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path. And I want you to understand something. That the decision for a person to come and embrace Jesus as Savior is not an easy decision. It is the hardest decision anybody will ever make in life. Ever. There is no decision that parallels it. None. None. And what Jesus is saying is, I'll say it this way, it ain't easy. And he begins to explain. And the explanation comes in verse 24. Look what he says in verse 24. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Why is it narrow? Why does he give that picture? See, the door's only this wide. Then You know how you get through that door? 
you have to set down this, and you have to set down your luggage, and you have to set down everything that you're carrying with you and want to bring in there. It, it won't fit through the door. The only thing that fits through the door is you. You've got to leave everything behind. Everything. You can't bring anything with you. It's like when you go to heaven. What, is that, what, is that, what, is, what do people leave behind? One answer. It's easy. What do you leave behind when you die? Everything. Everything. You can't take anything with you. You can't take it with you when you go to heaven. And you can't take it, bring it with you when you come to Christ. You got to set it all down and you got to leave it there. And that's what Jesus says to these people. Narrow is the door. So as you go out and you begin to minister and you begin to ask questions and you begin to meet the needs of people with your capabilities and your capacities, and you begin to see people freed and you begin to give explanation about the kingdom of God and about salvation and all that stuff, just realize this, narrow. Will many be saved? No. No. Because they're going to want to hold on to all that they've got their hands gripped around. But what Jesus begins to teach here is this. Is that going to stop any of us from mission? Will that stop us from the mission? The answer should be what? Nothing stops us from mission. Nothing. And so Jesus teaches in this passage of Scripture that entrance... It's more difficult than you think. But he goes on in verse 20, uh, pick it up, verse 25. Uh, Strive to enter at the narrow door, verse 24, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, he will answer. He says, I did not know where you came from. Then they will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. Who was it that ate and drank in their presence? Who's he talking about here? Pharisees. He said, we ate with your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I did not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He goes on, he gives four basic truths. Entrance is more difficult than you think. Second thing he says, many will not get through even though they try. And the reason they won't get through even though they try is because they're doing it their way instead of saying his way. See? And the third thing here is that Jesus is in charge of the door. Jesus is the one that controls the door. Picture of that goes back to the, the ark. Remember God shut the door? And when God shut the door, the door was shut. Jesus is still in charge of the door still is that's the picture and the last thing he says those that don't come are judged for their unbelief the picture here i think this is one of the most interesting things that happens is christianity is there's many ways no there's one and what people say when i say that is that's unfair well let me give you this illustration have any of you ever been to prince edward island not many of you, a couple of you have been to Prince Edward Island. If you ever go to Prince Edward Island, it's an interesting place. It's an island. Yeah. Prince Edward Island. 
When you go there, there's a bridge that goes out. If you want to drive to Prince Edward Island, there's only one way you can go. You've got to go across the bridge. It's an amazing bridge. It's like 13 miles long. You get out in the middle of that bridge, and you really can't see a lot of land either way. You're out there in the middle of the ocean on a bridge. Let me ask you something. Is it unfair that there's only one way to drive to Prince Edward Island? Is that unfair? One bridge, that's it. If you want to go to Prince Edward Island and you want to drive your car there, you have to go across that bridge to get to that island. Is that unfair? My answer is no, it's actually very fair because you can get to Prince Edward Island if you drive across the bridge. But there's only one bridge. There's only one way to get to heaven, guys. There's only one way. It's not your way. It's the way that Jesus laid out for us. They say, well, that's unfair. No, it isn't. It's actually very fair because there is a way. But you have to come his way. You have to leave it all behind. And you just have to be willing to say, I'm a sinner. I'm bent over. And I can't fix myself. God, touch my life. Free it. And let me fly. Some of you are wrestling with Christianity. You're wrestling hard. You you like that sin that you're holding on to. All of us in here understand that. You also are wrestling with, if I I give this up, I I don't know, that's going to radically adjust my entire life, and I I can't see how that's going to work out. No, you can't. That's why the scripture pictures you as bent over because you can't see. And you're wrestling with a decision to embrace Christ. That's good. That's good. I'd like to give you a homework assignment. I'd like to break it into three parts if I would. I'd like you to do this one, all right? Most people don't like to do homework, right? All the teachers find out. Nobody likes to do homework, but here's a homework assignment, okay? I want you to sit down with a pencil and paper or a pen, whichever your preference. Sit down with a pencil and paper at a table by yourself. And if you're wrestling with Christianity, I want you to write down on that piece of paper what is keeping you from embracing Christ and write it out. Because you need to be able to see it. And you need to be able to sit back and look and say, this is what's causing me from embracing Christ. This is what's keeping me from embracing Christ. I would like you to do this if you're here as a Christian. What's preventing you from being missional? What is it? Well, I'm busy. Well, write it down. Write it down. Because we need to do this. You need to be able to stand back, look at that piece of paper, and say, that's it right there. That's keeping me from being missional. Write it down so you can see it. And then I'd ask you to do this. Read it out loud. Because you need to see it. You need to hear it. It needs to go in through a couple of senses. Writing it. Seeing it. And hearing it. 
And then I'd like you to do this. Just write out some ways that God is using you in being missional. Write them down. Write them down so you can see it on a piece of paper. It may surprise you what the Lord has done. And it may open your eyes to see that's all that's keeping you from Christ? The door's open today. You can come in, but you've got to leave your sin. You can't bring anything with you. Come to Christ. Get it? Let's pray. God, thanks for the time today. Thanks for working in our hearts. Thanks for the Holy Spirit that just challenges us at every turn. God, I pray for those that are here today that are just wrestling with why they haven't yet believed or why they haven't yet embraced Jesus and salvation. I pray, Lord, that they'd be able to look at that on a piece of paper and see it. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would use that to just touch their heart and realize that Jesus just wants to touch them and just straighten them and free them from that, even though they can't see it. I pray, Lord, that people here would just be able to write down what is it that's preventing them from making disciples or what is preventing them from really being involved in mission so they can see it and then read it to themselves so they can hear it. Then I pray, Lord, as people sit down and write out what God is doing in their life, that they'd be encouraged to know that God is still using them more than they realize, to accomplish more than they realize. And I pray that you'd help all of these folk here today to take the next step in their walk as believers, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.